the Panhandle News Network. The views and opinions on this station do not necessarily represent the Panhandle News Network, WEPM and WCST, or West Virginia Radio Corporation. Welcome to Panhandle Live on the Panhandle News Network, WEPM and WCST. Broadcasting from the Hoppy Kerchival Building in Martinsburg. And it is Panhandle Live for this 12th day of December, 2023. That's 12-12-23. We welcome you inside the Hoppy Kerchival Building. Panhandle Live is driven by Country Roads Tyronado. We'll tell you a little bit more about them as the show goes on. I'm Luke Wiggs filling in. For Marsha Cavalli, because is our very own Daniel Woods. Daniel, good morning. Good morning, Luke. Thank you. And uh, also joining us in studio, studio is Martinsburg Police Chief Aaron Gibbons. And uh, Chief, as always, we appreciate you giving us the time. I know it's been a busy couple of days, but uh, thanks for coming in this morning. Good morning. I appreciate you having me on. Well, let's start with uh, the incident and uh, what took place yesterday, the shooting death in Spring Mills. Uh, the Martinsburg Police Department was involved in that. Can you talk about how you guys became aware of the situation and your involvement? Of course, the call came out over the radio and... Uh, Anytime there's an incident like this, everybody goes into full effect. We uh, we were actually looking for a very specific vehicle. One of my officers did spot the vehicle inside Martinsburg on uh, King Street. Uh, it was mobile. Uh, that officer made a stop on that vehicle. Uh, the vehicle did stop. Um, and by the time we come around the corner, uh, or I had come around the corner, he had already chucked the gun out. We took him into custody and held on to him until county arrived. Uh, not long after that. So. Have you been made aware of kind of the details of the incident? Obviously, it was a it was a, a spousal dispute. You know, are, have you learned any more details over the last twenty four hours? Uh, I have learned uh, quite a bit over the last, especially twenty four hours. Um, unfortunately, it is a it is a county call, um, so I can't really speak too much sure. on it. But I can say that it was very domestic. It was a child custody domestic issue. So. Um, you know, it's unfortunately, it's that time of year. Everything's getting really cold. People are getting cooped up, uh, you know, and I'll probably say it a couple more times throughout this broadcast. People really need to keep an eye on their friends, their family, their neighbors uh, this time of year, because it is it is that season for crazy things to happen. It really is. Well, what does that kind of coordination look like in a, in a shooting incident like this that's outside the jurisdiction, but like you mentioned, the car then located within city limits? Mm-hmm. You know, what does that kind of communication look like with state police, county police? What does that look like? Exactly? It may sound hectic if somebody is, let's just say, for example, scanning uh, that information over some sort of uh, app or whatever it is. Um, it may sound pretty chaotic, but to us, we're looking for very pertinent information, and that's whatever we can use to catch the individual that's involved in this situation so that he does not commit any more violence. Um, now, I can't say one way or the other whether he was he was going to commit more violence, but I can assure you that uh, the actions of our officers yesterday as well as Friday, I, I assure you that they did save lives. Um, 100%. Very, very honorable, very, very brave. Um, these guys are doing an awesome job, um, and I can't commend my officers even more. Well, you mentioned the incident on Friday. Let's talk about that as well. Uh, Friday at about 1230 on North Queen Street, there was a, another shooting incident. Uh, can you kind of recap that for the listeners? Yeah, so my <clears throat> my position as chief, you know, once I, once I get relayed that information, um, it doesn't matter what what's going on at the time, everything stops and everybody is focused on that, that situation. Um, 
the officers involved that showed up on scene at that time, they were there within minutes. I mean, they were there. They were there fast enough for this guy not to even make it completely up the stairs. That's, that's how fast it was. Um, and these officers that walked into that situation, you know, you hear gunshots are being fired uh, in downtown Martinsburg. These guys are walking into a situation where they know there is a propensity for lethality while there's shots being fired. And they walked right into that. And I assure you on Friday that had they, you know, they pulled this guy away from that door so quick that they saved lives doing that. Um, and unfortunately the, in, uh, the guy ended his own life, but fortunately nobody else in that apartment was, was, uh, was injured any more than they were. Well, are you able to expand on that sequence? Then your officers made contact with the individual. Was there an exchange of gunfire? There was an exchange of gunfire. Uh, they did fire on the subject. Uh, they did pull his attention away from that door that he was trying to get in, um, with two victims sitting inside that, that same apartment. And, uh, they exchanged gunfire, and after a brief period of time, that he took his own life. Well, you know, to go into the bravery, as you mentioned, as the officers that were there on the scene, and, you know, I'm sure there's, you know, simulated fire training in the academy and all these different ways that you try to prepare somebody for a situation like that, but nothing can prepare you for the real thing. I mean, it, it just it, you stand in amazement as to an individual that's willing to walk into a situation like that. Yeah, and every situation is different. You know, you prepare for different scenarios, and this scenario that I walked into the moment uh, I got on scene, which was very soon after uh, the incident ended, uh, I couldn't myself imagine pulling that scenario and putting somebody through that training. I mean, this guy was standing above them. How do you prepare for that? But these guys did honorably. They really did. They, they, uh, they handled their, the, that situation. And of course there's trauma all down the line. So whether it has to do with these, um, obviously, the guy from yesterday, he killed a female. He's in jail. There's kids out there somewhere that needs, need a place. There's a lot of trauma going around. Same with the officers on Friday. There's a lot of trauma that went through these officers, every officer that was on scene, and the victims. So making sure that my officers are taken care of even afterwards, getting them, you know, putting them off for a little bit of time, just giving them a little breather, let them catch their breath, get them a little counseling, just make sure they have a conversation with somebody, make sure they're all right, and get them back to work. Well, and of course, you talk about the bravery of the, the police officers to intervene right away, but the, this, the, the reaction as a whole, I know that you guys had shut down North Queen Street, you know, kind of created mm -hmm. a perimeter. Were you happy with, you know, because this isn't something that happens in this area a ton, uh, in its entirety, how the situation was handled, not just by those first on the scene, but everybody that was involved to, to, to localize the incident? Yeah, to localize the incident, it, it has everything to do with actually getting the street shut down. What if the guy walks back out of the building? What if uh, he walks out the back of the building? So we have people in the back of the building um, getting the street shut, uh, shut down so that nothing, if something does uh, happen, nothing goes flying down the street and hits a bystander. You know, you really have to take that into consideration to include the uh, other occupants of the building. So, but this was a very quick, this was a very quick exchange. There wasn't much time to actually shut things down, get people out of apartments. This was happening right now, whether you liked it or not. Absolutely. Well, our guest this morning, Martinsburg Police Chief Aaron Gibbons. And the last time we had you on, as we kind of shift gears a little bit, uh, you talked about some new hiring, some promotions as well. Uh, where do you stand now in terms of numbers of people on the force, and are you still looking to add officers? We're still looking to add on. Uh, we just had a test this last a weekend, seven past everything, so they're going into the background phase. I already have, 
think I still have about seven in the background phase that have completed the backgrounds going on to, you know, medical and checked by the civil service, stuff like that. So we still have openings available. However, we won't probably won't have another test until mid to late January. Uh, we do have Academy class coming up in January. So hopefully I can get, maybe I'll get, uh, five or six into that class. So we're, we're looking really good. And I, I hope to be fully staffed by early to mid fall of 24. So, and, and how do you deal with the push and pull of wanting to staff an, uh, an understaffed police department, but also making sure that the individuals that you hired are as trained as they need to be, if they have to experience incidents like last uh, yesterday and Friday, I mean, how, how big is the give and take with wanting to get somebody on the force as soon as possible, but making sure that they're the best version of a trained police officer. Right. And, and that's, you can lose somebody in a moment. Mm -hmm. Somebody can quit. Somebody can resign. Somebody can go to another department very fast. That can happen in a matter of a week or so. However, to train somebody to come in, just for example, these guys that were involved in that shootout, we'd had the one guy was here for a year. The other one was here for two and a half years. You know, the ones that actually exchanged fire. So Getting these through that process to get them highly trained, it takes a very long amount of time, at least six, eight months just to get them through the academy, through the FTO program. We have very scenario, we have a lot of scenario-based training that we put them through. So, so we make sure that they're ready before we put them out on their own. Well, you mentioned you had a couple of upcoming initiatives that you wanted to touch on as well. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm, I, of course, my phone's been blowing up all weekend <laughs> and it usually does. I'm chief of police and that's, I guess that's the nature of the beast, right? Um, so we do have a, an initiative coming up, hopefully get it enacted, um, come February or March. It's in a security assessment, uh, team. It's going to be a couple of my guys are getting trained to do security assessments for organizations, local organizations, businesses, um, local governments, um, so that they can come into that building and actually do a security assessment, working out some policy, some waiver, uh, information, but hopefully I'll have that, um, enacted hopefully late January into February. But once I'll be talking to you guys uh, before then, and once that's out, we're going to make it very well known because I don't, you know, everybody thinks that it's not going to happen to them, but things do happen, especially this time of year. And uh, people need to be prepared and know what their security risks are and do an assessment on their own uh, buildings. Well, well, certainly, I don't know about you, but today was the first day coming into work where I had to sit for a couple of minutes and let the defroster do its thing. We're getting into the winter months. We're going to start to see some snow on the ground. I did want to ask you this question because we had this conversation with Morgan County Sheriff Casey Bohr, and obviously their roads are a little bit different than the, the, the Martinsburg area. But, yeah. you know, are there some particular trouble spots in the city of Martinsburg, you know, when there's snow on the ground that people need to be more cognizant of, more aware of when they're on the road. Well, being able to recognize it, you know, everybody just needs to slow down when that, <laughs> when that's happening. And whether it's black ice or there's just an inch of packed snow on the road, you just need to be a little bit more careful. And we're inside the city limits, you know, the street department does an excellent job keeping the roads clear, but they just need to stay vigilant and keep an eye on one, the temperature and two, the conditions of the road. And on that same note, you know, last year at this time, it dropped a week before Christmas, it dropped to 10 degrees below zero. <laughs> so one thing that I pushed everybody, I know I talked about a couple of hotlines last time I was on, but just reaffirm that everybody keeps extra set of clothing, extra blankets, stuff like that in their, in their, uh, vehicle. And if you have that teenager, like I do, that wants to wear a t-shirt and shorts in the wintertime, you're going to need that extra, <laughs> that extra clothing in your vehicle, just in case you break down or an accident or something. Well, our guest this morning, Martinsburg Police Chief Aaron Gibbons. And uh, sir, before we let you go, is there anything you, uh, else that you want the listeners to know? 
Hey, um, we are, uh, this next weekend, we are having that Merry Makers um, down at the uh, Roundhouse. Uh, it was a huge showing this last weekend. Um, it is, I'm trying to think of the time, I believe it's December 16th, 17th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. So make sure you show up and uh, support local um, organizations that are, or vendors that are down there. Absolutely. Well, well, as always, sir, we appreciate your time. Thank you for coming in. Thank you very much. We got a break to take. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment on Panhandle Live. You're listening to Panhandle Live on WEPM Martinsburg and WCST Berkeley Springs. Welcome back to Panhandle Live here on WEPM and WCST. Panhandle Live is driven by Country Roads Tire and Auto, taking you home with full-service auto care with a higher level of care. With two locations to proudly serve you in Martinsburg and Hedgesville online to at countryroastire.com. Today, if you missed our interview with Martinsburg Police Chief Aaron Gibbons, we're going to be posting this episode coming up in just a couple of minutes on our Panhandle News Network uh, Spotify page. And uh, we mentioned John Doyle and his significant political announcement. Uh, we'll continue to tease it, although we, we made the announcement at 8 o'clock. He's going to be joining us here in just a couple of moments uh, to talk about his uh, upcoming political future. You're not going to want to miss that. But before we do that, let's uh, take a look back. Um, at some of the, the news in the very busy news cycle. As you heard yesterday, we had Morgan County Sheriff Casey Bohr on. A Martinsburg man had been found guilty of voluntary manslaughter. That was back in 2022, a stabbing death of a Berkeley Springs man. And here's what uh, Sheriff Bohr had to say yesterday. Case agent on that was uh, Deputy Brad Knotts, who did an outstanding job. And Chief Deputy John Walter oversaw that investigation. Deputy Knotts, and it may have been Deputy Roper, were the first units on the scene even before EMS, and they began life-saving efforts prior to EMS getting there for the victim in this. But, uh, you know, sometimes all the efforts that you may give forth can't rectify the damage that's done by weapons. My recollection, this started as somewhat of a domestic, and I believe the victim was uh, going to the aid of a female. That trial had gotten underway December 5th. It wrapped up on the 8th, and uh, prosecutor Dan James said the jury deliberated for an hour and a half before reaching his verdict. Uh, Sheriff Bohr also gave an update on the missing Hampshire County man who unfortunately was found dead over the weekend. I received a, a call from Sheriff Signs in Hampshire County advising me that Mr. Gilbert had been reported missing to them on uh, Thursday. So we devised a plan to get people together from Hampshire, Morgan, Deputy Reserve, State Police, Paul Paul Volunteer Fire Department. We met early morning on Friday. We searched from 8 o'clock till probably 2, 2.30 that afternoon. Sadly, uh, probably about 2.30 in that afternoon, we did locate Mr. Gilbert deceased. Uh, he'd been out in the woods probably for about two days and probably was an exposure incident. Of course, as you heard from Chief Gibbons as well, we had a couple of domestic-related shootings last Friday in the incident on West King Street uh, where a man took his own life after firing several shotgun rounds into a building and then yesterday the shooting at the urgent care in Spring Mills. And Daniel, really, the, the only takeaways I have from these unfortunate incidents is these are incidents that don't happen often in a city like Martinsburg and Berkeley County, uh, and you have a lot of respect for the police to respond the way that they did. Again, that. I have uh, a tremendous amount of admiration for somebody that's willing to walk into a building where gunfire is heard. And the reaction time in both cases, I, I think, you know, you have to give a lot of praise to the responding police forces here in Martinsburg. That's absolutely right. And it's been a chaotic few days for us just trying to keep up with the headlines, let alone the sheriff's office for Berkeley County and the Martinsburg Police Department 
responding to these incidents and uh, a case like yesterday where there is a suspect in a vehicle and you've got to find him. And uh, like you said, a ton of respect uh, for the response, um, particularly uh, really with both incidents, but particularly Friday uh, with an exchange of gunfire between the the suspect and, and Martinsburg police. Uh, and then yesterday, you talked about it uh, when we had Chief Gibbons in here, the coordination between Berkeley County Sheriff's and Martinsburg Police uh, to make that arrest yesterday, where it is an incident that happens outside the city limits, but there is reason to believe that the, the suspect is within uh, the city of Martinsburg at that point, and uh, Martinsburg Police uh, are the ones that are able to uh, to to secure that arrest and, and then... The, the sheriff's office takes it from there. Also in our news cycle, more than $111 million was awarded to 19 West Virginia school districts uh, for upcoming construction projects. It's the most funding by the State Building Authority since 2011. Great reporting by Metro News' Kerry Hudasek, who has this audio uh, from Jim Justice talking about inflation is to blame and construction money isn't going as far as it used to. Everything's gone up. I, I personally believe, and I hate to say this, and this sounds political, but the Biden administration has got us on a chaos, you know, pathway. And so, so with all that being said, construction dollars are not going as far, but we still do the very best we can do. Also in attendance uh, was Berkeley County Superintendent Ron Stevens talked about all the growth in the area. That will be used um, to help us build our infrastructure and build elementary schools in the eastern panhandle that when we build will most likely be full when we open them. And it's good to see that money diverted to area schools, Daniel, because, you know, we've been reading some of the, I don't want to say alarming statistics, but there are a lot of school buildings in Berkeley County that are over 75 or 100 years old. And this is also an area that is experiencing more population growth than anywhere else in the state. You know, we make the joke just from a high school perspective that there's four AAA high schools or quad A, depending on the sport, uh, in Berkeley County, two more in Jefferson County. And there's a chance that two more high schools could be built in Berkeley County over the next 10 years. And that's just the high schools. You've got to think about elementary schools, middle schools, uh, kindergartens. You know, this is infrastructure that needs to be addressed over the next couple of years as we continue to build. That's right. And everybody wants to talk about the population growth in this area or the population growth on that 64 corridor between Charleston and Huntington. Uh, but you have to think about the impact that that has on local utilities and the educational system is part of that. And it, it is good to see that that money diverted. I know uh, with where I uh, came here from in north central West Virginia, they have the opposite problem. You've got high schools being consolidated in Harrison County right now uh, where Liberty High School is, is going to close and be merged with Robert C. Byrd. It's the completely opposite issue here where there is starting to be overcrowding. And Spring Mills High School is not that old. Right. Uh, but you you have older buildings and you have older buildings that are started to be a little bit overcrowded again. And like you said, there's the possibility for the addition of more big high schools in Berkeley County in the near future. Uh, so you look ahead and you say, that's that's great. It, it would be good to be able to spread things out a little bit more. But until then, you have to maintain the buildings that you have now. Uh, and you don't really have another option. So if you're able to do that, and it looks like with this money that's coming in, you will be able to do that and help maintain the buildings that are already in place, uh, it's it's a big step forward. So 
Certainly. Well, we've got another break to take. When we return, our guest will be former Jefferson County Delegate John Doyle. He's got an interesting political announcement that we'll talk about through the break. You're listening to Panhandle Live. Local news now at panhandlenewsnetwork.com. Now back to Panhandle Live. Welcome back inside the Hoppy Kirchville building, this December 12th edition of Panhandle Live. It's Luke Wiggs and Daniel Woods hanging out with you. Daniel filling in admirably for Marsha Kavalik as we welcome our next guest into the studio, former Jefferson County Delegate John Doyle, maybe one of the few remaining people that still possesses a flip phone I saw out there in the lobby. Uh, 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 it is a flip smartphone. It's a flip smartphone. Oh, so okay. is it one of the folds? Yeah. It's one of the new ones. Okay. No butt calls. I see. All right. <laughs> so so, so I, I take it you're a fan of it. Oh, yeah. I've okay. had it almost a year. Oh, yeah, it's, it's really great, yeah. It fits in any pocket. There's no, no chance of it falling out, yeah. And you still have the, you know, on a smartphone, you don't have the satisfying flip or hang up, you know, like you used to with a phone. Obviously, with that one, you do. So when you have a really emphatic end to a call, right, you get to slam it shut, that must be nice. <laughs> I try not to do that. I've, I don't know whether it hurt the phone or not, but I don't want to take any chances. <laughs> well, of course, we didn't just bring you on to review your cell phone. Uh, we, we brought you in because you have a very important political announcement. I do. I'm running for the state Senate. In the 16th district, which is all of Jefferson County and a little bit less than half of Berkeley County. Well, mm. it's an area of the state that you've represented in the past. The House of Representatives, why the move and the House decision of delegates. Or delegates, forgive me, uh, your decision. To <laughs> and you're from Morgantown. You I should know, know that. <laughs> <laughs> there are three states that use the term House of Delegates for the lower house. They're all right here. West Virginia, Maryland and Virginia. Almost everybody else. It's the state House of Representatives. There are five states that call the lower house the assembly, mm -hmm. New York, New Jersey, Nevada, California, and, and Wisconsin. Uh, and Nebraska just has a Senate. Mm -hmm. They have unicameral. So you know, about 35 states have state house of representatives. Well, your decision to yeah. move to state Senate then. We'll, we'll talk well, about that. Move. Yeah, I'm not in the house of delegates at the moment. Yeah. Um, I, there's a, there are half a dozen things that I think the state needs to be addressing that it is not addressing. And the most critical of those is the condition of our public schools. Public school teachers are fleeing West Virginia for their economic lives. This must stop. It reached crisis proportion years ago, and we've done nothing about it. Uh, I, I think there needs to be a major pay increase for teachers statewide immediately and in addition to that, we need locality pay here in the Eastern Panhandle. Oh, and by the way, human service caseworkers and other state employees are doing the same thing. We, we've been treating them like serfs for many, many years, and we simply have to do something about it. Uh, that's one. Uh, I want to protect air and water. I'm, I stand strong for clean air and clean water. And I also want to protect our elections. I believe in guaranteeing the right to vote, but in also protecting election security. I'll give you a couple of examples, one of each. I think state government should mandate that every county that has more than 35,000 people should have at least two early voting locations. And every county with at least 50,000 people should have at least three early voting locations. Now, that's the right to vote side of it. That's just one example of what I'm for. Also on election security, we have a secretary of state, Mac Warner, who claims to be for election security. 
but he pulled us out of a national clearinghouse called Eric, where states, the, 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 the rules are in Eric, if you're in, it, let's say one of you moves from Martinsburg to Hagerstown. Maryland's in Eric. Mm-hmm. Um, immediately, the state of Maryland would say, uh, this person has moved here and registered to vote. Immediately, the notice would go to West Virginia, you're no longer eligible to vote in West Virginia. Mac Warner, who claims to be for election security, pulled us out of that clearinghouse because he said it was partisan. It's not, but even if it were, the answer is to fix the problem, not pull out. So that's that's another one. Uh, we we passed a law a couple of years ago, ban, effectively banning abortion. There are a couple of really tiny exceptions that have so much rigmarole involved, they really don't would never apply to very many people. Polls have shown the people of West Virginia do not like this law. Uh, five years ago, we had a referendum on the issue. Uh, it was very close, about three and a half percentage points uh, between the pro-life side and the pro-choice side. The Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade with the Dobbs decision a year ago fundamentally transformed the way people think about that issue in every state in the union. Uh, you can see that in, in elections. You can see it in the referenda around the country. I think we need another statewide referendum to see where the people of West Virginia think on this issue. And another issue that I care about, it's a new one for me because I didn't know about it till a year or so ago, right to repair. West Virginia needs a right to repair law. Uh, if you buy a vehicle, a brand new vehicle, the manufacturer of that vehicle retains the information needed to repair it as proprietary information. I think that's wrong. I think that should be the consumer's information. So if you want to go to a, an independent uh, uh, repair shop to have it fixed or fix it yourself, if you think you can do it, you should have a right to do that. And all it, all it needs is a, the state passing a law saying the consumer has a right to this information and the, the companies would have to give it. So those are a few of the issues that I care about and why it is that I'm running. Well, let's go back and start at the beginning then with yeah. the issue of locality pay, <laughs> um, among other things that you raised in terms of education. There's a lot of support, especially in this part of the state, uh, for locality pay, for uh, a pay raise to teachers, although they run, they run into significant stumbling blocks when they raise those issues in Charleston. I mean, what can be done to force something like that through state legislature? Well, it's a matter of political will and political effort. Uh, back when, when I, the Democrats were in the majority, we only had six members of the House of Delegates and two senators representing these three counties. That's not enough to get it done. We now have 11 members of the House of Delegates and four state senators. The population has changed that much in the meantime. We ought to be able to use those numbers to, to deal with, to, with the rest of the state saying, listen, you want our help on things that are critical to you? This is critical to us. We're happy to make a deal with you. Uh, and in, in the past, again, we did not have the numbers to be able to make such a deal. We do now. And it's got nothing to do with Democrat versus Republican. Uh, I'm a Democrat. But like I say, back then, people said, hey, you know, it's a uh, uh, sorry, not enough of you. There are enough of us now. Hmm. 
Well, can you talk about kind of that that transition through your time, like you mentioned in the House of Delegates, to a, a very blue state through the '80s and the '90s, and how it's changed? You know, if you were to re-enter the political cycle, re-enter state legislature, uh, I, I know that you had spent time in a pretty yeah. red state legislature, but do you feel as though that could be a blockade to what you think you could accomplish? No. Uh, when when I was many years, I was in the majority, two to one or better. There were Republicans who were able to get things done uh, because they simply were willing to work across the aisle. They'd say, listen, you know, we got a problem here. I got an idea about how to solve it. I'm willing to talk with you. Uh, a good example is is Larry Faircloth, mm. who represented South Berkeley for years. Uh, he was able to work with Democrats. He'd get up on the floor and he'd make these speeches about how stupid we were. Uh, and we'd, uh, I'd sit there and kind of chuckle uh, because as soon as it was over, uh, I'd go go to Larry or he'd come to me and say, hey, how am I going to solve this problem? Uh, and that that's how you have to do it. It's uh, uh, you, you have to be not just willing but eager to say, how can we solve this problem? And this is a critical problem for the Eastern Panhandle, and the Eastern Panhandle needs to stand together. Absolutely. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, the, the Eastern Panhandle has grown. There's more representation, and that's because of the population growth. How do mm. you plan to balance, uh, if you were to be elected, would you plan to balance working with other legislators that may have different issues because they're in areas that aren't growing like the Eastern Panhandle. Absolutely. And I have, uh, I have, uh, I have supported economic development for the coal fields for years. Uh, and, and particularly, yeah, I want it to be sustainable economic development. Uh, and, uh, uh l- let's face it. Uh, the coal industry is on its last legs has nothing to do with public policy, with government rules. It's the market. It's just the, I mean, 50 years ago, coal seams were, the ceiling was higher than this studio we're in. 20 years ago, they were down to about four, three or four feet high. They're now getting to be a foot high. And 10 years from now, they're going to be a few inches high. It's just not going to be attainable. It's not going to be economically feasible to get it anymore. And so we have to have jobs for those areas. If we had realized that 30, 40 years ago, West Virginia would not have been losing population. If we had gotten sustainable economic development into the coal fields to replace those jobs gradually as they left, we would have retained the people there. But we did not have the foresight. I remember when Bob Wise was governor about 25 years ago. He said, we got about 30 years left worth of coal. Well, he was probably about five years short. We maybe got about 10 years more now uh, that we can depend on it for real employment. Uh, well, last week, obviously, you could have heard it here on WEPM and WCST. Metro News' Hoppy Kirchival held a gubernatorial roundtable with three of the uh, Republican nominees for state governor. Of course, Patrick Morrissey was not in attendance, but we got to hear uh, from Chris Miller, Moore Capito, and Mac Warner. Uh, what were your thoughts? Were you able to watch the debate or at least read the articles surrounding the debate? And what would you be looking for yeah. uh, for the next governor of West Virginia to address uh, specifically here in the Eastern Panhandle? Well, I hope the next governor addresses the things that I talked about uh, when we started. And I know that Steve Williams will do that uh, if he is elected governor. Uh, and and I have some optimism that he will be. Mm. 
Uh, no, I did not. Was not able to listen to the debate, but I did hear about uh, Mac Warner saying that the CIA st- stage January sixth. And I thought, okay, this is making a little bit more sense now that Mac Warner, who claims to be in favor of election security, pulled us out of the clearinghouse to guarantee election security. Absolutely. Well, and an editor's note, by the way, uh, Mac Warner is going to be the first guest on today's Metro News Talk Line, and he will defend his claim that the CIA stole the 2020 elections. You're going to be able to hear it from himself. (laughs) Well, we'll see. (laughs) Circling back to some of the issues that you addressed, sir, and uh, former Jefferson County Delegate John Doyle is uh, with us announcing his run for uh, the 16th District Senate seat. You mentioned the issue of abortion and taking West Mm. Virginia's temperatures on that particular issue. Um, in terms of your constituents, have you, what have you heard in terms of readdressing that issue, uh, in terms of the, the opinion of West Virginians as to how the state should address it? I've heard from dozens of people since the Dobbs decision, I had no idea that abortion was in danger. These are people who, uh, some of whom have voted for Republicans in the past. They're people who are conservative on economic issues and fiscal issues, but who b- believe that this most private of decisions should be between a woman and her doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, nationally, the, the shift has been about 10 points on the issue. If you look at the referenda around the country, uh, it's been about 10 points from the pro-life side to the pro-choice side. Uh, in terms of elections of individuals, it's been about five points toward the Democrats from that uh, on that issue alone. So I think, uh, again, it, it is time the state revisited that question. We, we, I voted against the law that we passed uh, because I think it is, it is, it is so draconian. Uh, and, and, uh, while I consider myself pro-choice, you know, I don't, I I don't foresee the day that the majority of West Virginians would accept simply, but no rules at all, no matter when we're going to have some rules, but they need to be much more sensible than the ones that are on the books now. Certainly. Well, again, our guest, uh, John Doyle, anything else you want the listeners to know before we let you go, you know, more, they can find out more information about your campaign. Um, www.doyleforeasternpanhandle.com. Uh, and, uh, I have not filed pre-candidacy papers yet, but I will do so later today or tomorrow, depending <laughs> on the schedule. Uh, and, uh, no, those are the issues that I care most about, uh, that I want talked about. If you all have any other issue you want to bring up, I'm happy to answer any question on anything. Sure. Well, I, I think we've covered just about <laughs> okay. everything I needed to cover it, uh, in fairness. And, uh, uh, as always, we appreciate you giving us the time for a variety of different issues. I, I did forget the last question I wanted to ask you. Okay. We had an interesting conversation before we started that I, uh, I had picked the incorrect nomenclature for the town that I'm from. I'm a, a Morgan Towner, as you you said. I, I refer to myself as a Morgantonian. You said there's a very specific way, the way that the end of your town is spelled out to how you would say you're from a town. So what are Martinsburg natives supposed to call themselves? ER. 
Martin's, Martin's Burger. That's oh, right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I have a book at home called Labels for Locals <laughs> that explains not only how it is done, but the rationale okay. behind each one. Uh, and we talked about if you're in Frederick, you're a Frederickite. If it's an L-A-N-D, you're an Ur, a Cumberlander, a Marylander. Mm. Uh, and there, there are some interesting uh, uh, offshoots of that. If you are either from Front Royal, Virginia, or Port Royal, Michigan... You're a royalist. Oh, interesting. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and in Michigan, you are a Michigander. A Michigander. Yeah, Michigander. they love calling it that. Yeah. Fascinating way to end the segment and end the interview. John Doyle has been our guest, and, sir, we really appreciate you giving us the time. Oh, I, I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Absolutely. We've got one more break to take. We'll wrap up the show in just a moment here on Panhandle Live. Broadcasting from the Hoppy Kerchival Building in Martinsburg, it's Panhandle Live. Final segment for this Tuesday edition of Panhandle Live. It's Luke Wiggs and Daniel Woods hanging out with you. Marsha Kavalik out today. She'll be back tomorrow. If you missed any or part of our interview with Martinsburg Police Chief Aaron Gibbons and former Jefferson County Delegate John Doyle, who is announcing his run for the 16th District in the State Senate, uh, we're going to post this episode coming up in just a couple of moments on our Panhandle News Network Spotify page. But you heard this morning uh, in our Metro News cycle, we didn't talk about this much in Panhandle Sports Live. I want to kind of dive into it now. There's not one but two cases filed either by Raekwon Battle or by Raekwon Battle's behalf uh, that are currently being contested against the NCAA, Daniel. Um, both of these things have generated significant buzz, both of these cases, I should say, and uh, we may see some progress here in the next couple of days. That's right. We will likely see the first step um, in cases again there are two cases against the NCAA involving the state of West Virginia right now and they really stem from the same situation uh but tomorrow uh there will be a hearing in Wheeling uh for a temporary restraining order uh in a case against the NCAA uh that has been filed by the attorney generals of seven states one of which is West Virginia's Patrick Morrissey it'll be the northern district of West Virginia um where this case will be heard. Um, so they have filed for a temporary restraining order um, against the NCAA that would provide a legal challenge to the NCAA's ability to enforce its rules for transfer athletes. So the NCAA in recent years opened up the ability for athletes to transfer once during their undergraduate careers and not have to sit out and there are very, very narrow exceptions for a second transfer being immediately eligible. WVU believes that Raekwon Battle, who's a guard for the Mountaineer basketball team, uh, would fall under one of those exceptions. He's been denied by the NCAA twice in, in terms of waiver appeals. So he is not the only player named in this broader case against the NCAA that's being heard in Wheeling, and there will be a hearing on that temporary restraining order tomorrow at 10 a.m. And Jeff Jenkins said last night on uh, the statewide sports line that Metro News will have a reporter uh, in Wheeling for that case. Uh, so you can stick with Metro News for more information on that. Uh, and then there's a second case that's being heard in Clarksburg that also uh, has some news. That is Raekwon Battle directly suing the NCAA for his eligibility. Uh, Rocky Giannola uh, appeared on Metro News Talk Line with Hoppy Kirchival last week. Uh, Rocky Giannola is Raekwon Battle's attorney in this case, and he has represented WVU basketball in, in a variety of ways in the past. Um, but 
That case is Raekwon Battle suing directly for his eligibility. And you got an interesting case of there always being a West Virginia connection uh, in in this situation, in this suit, uh, where Tom Clee, uh, the judge in Clarksburg that was originally assigned to this case, had to recuse himself yesterday uh, on the grounds that he has very openly on social media shown his support for WVU basketball over the years. The uh, so, so Tom Clee, um, so as to not let there be any shadow of a doubt of his partiality in this case, has recused himself uh, from Raekwon Battle's lawsuit against the NCAA. Again, that will be heard in Clarksburg. Tomorrow is the first big step, uh, which is that broader case that's been brought by seven different attorney generals that will be heard in Wheeling, a temporary restraining order uh, against the NCAA is what they are seeking uh, to allow athletes to play right away and to suspend the NCAA's transfer regulations uh, under antitrust violations. Well, and that's kind of my concern through all of this. You mentioned a temporary restraining order and allowing Raekwon to play. What happens if he is granted eligibility in the short term by this hearing tomorrow, plays a couple of games only for the NCAA to be able to fortify the decision they've already made? That's the concern. Because he's a fifth-year player, and I would assume that that would start the clock on his remaining year of eligibility. So is there not a concern that he could come back, play three, four games, just for the NCAA to re-deny him, and then he's out of eligibility? That's the concern. And the impression that I've gotten uh, in anything that I've seen over the last few days is WVU, with Raekwon Battle's case in particular, wants to make sure that it is an absolute slam dunk that he will be eligible for the remainder of the season if they are going to play him in a basketball game this year. Um, so, Well, and then let me ask you this as well. I mean, at what point do we need to have the conversation? This is a sports-related conversation, I know, late for Panhandle Live, that this Mountaineer basketball team had been picked apart piece by piece. They'd lost their head coach, and right now they're struggling to win basketball games. You do get Kirk Kreese back. Getting Raekwon back would certainly be able to help this team, but at what point does WVU need to have the conversation that even with Raekwon, we're heading into conference play in the toughest conference of college basketball. We're really going to struggle. Is it in our and Raekwon's best interest, instead of giving him an abbreviated season where he's granted eligibility, to keep him on the roster, not play him this season, and then bring him back for the entirety of next year? If you were to put me in the shoes of Josh Eilert, who's the interim head Nobody coach wants to be at WVU, Eilert no shoes. one, no, I, I would agree. And this is not a Josh Eilert decision entirely. Uh, he, I'm sure, uh, again, I do not know anything about the inner workings of the WVU athletic department under Ren Baker's administration. But my thought process is Josh Eilert's not the only person making this decision. He is involved, I'm sure, but there is the compliance office that has to make sure all of the bases are covered here. I'm sure Ren Baker uh, is, is deeply invested in this situation. Uh, but if I'm Josh Eilert and I'm really anyone in the WVU athletic department, when it comes down to it, this is a decision that needs to be made soon because I would say the potential benefit of having Raekwon battle this season up against the benefit of having him next season and the benefit to Raekwon Battle of playing a full season next year, I think once you hit the start of the second semester in January, I, I think the benefits of pushing his eligibility to next year outweigh the benefits of having him just for the majority of conference play this year. I did want to mention, by the way, as I said, you can text us 304-263-4321. One text in relation to the John Doyle interview. If you missed it, uh, he announced his candidacy for the 16th district seat in the state Senate. Uh, texter says, I like Doyle, comma, for a Democrat. 
but totally off on coal. We have an unbelievable amount of good coal that can be mined. We appreciate the text, as always, and you can text us for tomorrow's show, 304-263-4321. Our guests, as you just heard, John Doyle and Martinsburg Police Chief Aaron Gibbons. We're going to post this episode on our Spotify coming up in just a couple of moments. It's Metro News Big Chair, I mean Talk Line, with Dave Wilson that leads off the top of the hour, where his first guest will be Mac Warner, who is going to talk about his comments made about the 2020 election during last week's gubernatorial discussion. Thanks for filling in, Daniel Woods. Happy to be here. Uh, for Daniel Woods, I've been Luke Wiggs. Marsha Kavalik will be back in tomorrow, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Martinsburg and WCST Berkeley Springs, a WVRC media station. We're proud to live here too.